mate. Welcome to episode 20. Are we episode 20 or 21? Somebody fill me in. What are we? 20. 20. 20. We're episode 20. Yeah, welcome to episode 20. Um, this week we're talking all about the 90s. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, we'll probably waffle on for fucking hours, so forgive us for that. Um, I want to welcome a uh, new guest to the podcast, long-time friend. You know, this is two hours of his life he's never going to get back. Uh, Mr. Robert Lang. Hello. Hello, everybody, and hello to uh, Into the Abyss, people I know I've known for years, and I'm very honoured to be here. You sure about that? Well, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> sure. Am I sure? Yes, I am. Yeah. We'll see if you say the same thing in a couple of rounds. <laughs> That's <laughs> Um, just quickly, because I, I keep forgetting to mention it, um, you can get in touch with us via all the social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter and, and all that, um, at Merch in the Abyss, at In the Abyss UK on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you want to come and give us some abuse, please do. Uh, it's always welcome. Otherwise, just come and say hello. <laughs> anybody wants to get involved in the podcast as well, you know, anybody's more than welcome. If you've got an opinion, um, it's, uh, you know, the more the merrier. So come and get involved. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about the 90s. We're splitting this into three episodes because we all like a waffle anyway. Uh, but the 90s are our formative years, all being sort of early 40s. So it'll be something we'll talk about a lot. First episode is going to be sort of 90 to 93. And then we'll look at the middle ground. And then the big finale will be uh, rinsing new metal for how it ruined the music we love and a few other bits and pieces. But before we get on to that, we'll talk about what's going on in metal this week. Uh, not much, to be honest with you. Um, some of it circulates around Ozzy Osbourne and his horrible family. Um, so <laughs> uh, there's going to be another Osbourne's fly on the wall documentary about them moving back to the UK. So what do we all think about that? Well, you know, like it's like I've said before, you know, he's... <sighs> He's the poor Gascoigne of metal now. It's just like, you know, everyone like <laughs> refers to him as like the mercurial talent from years ago, but now he's just like a pissed up, washed up drunk. And, you know, we'll kind of, we still love him, but we just like, just stop now. Let him, let him put him out to pasture. You know, put him in an old people's home and just let him, let him be, you know. Um, <clears throat> I was a bit confused by this news because all the reports suggest he's not well. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he obviously can't perform gigs at the moment. So I, I, I'm confused as why he's able to appear in a TV show. I mean, that's his choice. It just seems like a weird move at this stage in his life. But he's, um, he's just come out and said that he's confident he can get on stage and perform every night, which uh, I, I can't see it. No, see it. but, um, you know, with respect to the guy, you know, I love, you know, Pearl Downton for Sabbath and all that. So, and, and you know, he is funny, so hopefully, <laughs> I did. I, I I did think to myself. So obviously, the news this week is well. You know, let's address the elephant in the room: the the passing of the queen. No way to talk about her. Um, <laughs> He's brought it up already. Um, but no, no. I, I was I was going to link this to Aussie because I I <laughs> you know because I don't know if any of you are aware, but so that the UK government and the royal family have had a plan in place, a protocol, a set of procedures for for years called. Operation London Bridge for, for when the Queen died. And they had like a, a kind of an, an addendum to that as well called Operation Unicorn, which was if she specifically died in Scotland. Why you need a separate plan for if she dies in Scotland, I don't know. It's not as if like, you know, 
the 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 Scots are going to rise up and take back the uh, the Stone of Scone from like you know White, uh, Westminster Abbey. But and I was thinking to myself, what happens when Aussie dies? What's the protocol? Like you know, do and so I've written one. I've written a protocol for when Aussie. Dies. I'm going to send it. <laughs> I am going to send it to the um, UK government. Um, so the operations you know, operation, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so basically it's called Operation Electric Funeral. Um, <laughs> on, on, on news on on news Sorry, of, of on, on news of um Aussie's death, the Prime Minister will um authorize the playing of the sirens at the beginning of war picks across the nation to notify us that he's passed away. And at every single British Rail train station, the intro with to Crazy Train will be played. Um, <laughs> uh, the PM, the P, the the, the uh, PM will then issue the code word to the UK military and armed forces that fairies wear boots, <laughs> um, and that will uh, instigate, you know, a, a lockdown of sorts. Um, at twelve PM on the first Sunday after um, he dies. Um, especially on a Sunday morning when there are clouds in the sky without warning, a wizard will walk by not talking just walking, spreading his magic then at 12pm on the, on the same day, it will be mandatory to go outside and bark at the moon and um, when he's finally buried, there will be a, a morning guard made up of um, primary school children and they'll be referred to as children of the, of the grave and they will, they will be replaced periodically every three or four years. So for, from now and until the end of time, there will be children gardening his grave. And also any UK metal band abroad will be summoned back to our shores to uh, play a, a tribute gig at the funeral. So like, you know, they, they'll be keeping tabs on, all the UK metal bands. I mean, I think that is a, a fitting tribute to a metal legend. Can we make sure that the uh, tribute concert is held at Villa Park, please? It can't be anywhere else. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm hopefully thinking if if we can get, hopefully, if not hopefully, but if Ozzy <laughs> dies before Ian McKellen, then Ian McKellen can be the wizard. We'll just dress him up again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get the staff out. You know, get get the, the get the harmonica. Um, and also, like I was thinking as well, did you see the 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 the, the gun salutes today in Edinburgh and Cardiff and Gibraltar yeah. and everything? Yeah? yeah. Is it just me, or were you thinking? It sounds like the intro to we uh, for those about to rock by ACDC. Like you just kept thinking, like you know, Brian Johnson was going to pop up and say we salute you. You know, so I think that would be a more fitting tribute, to be honest, <clears> than just you know, somebody sort of wandering through the streets. But you know, it's like. I really want to see, like, you know, VH1 do, like, a tribute documentary to the Queen called, v, you know, VH1 Behind the Crown. Um, and, you know, because there's got to be stories that we don't know about from, from, the, from the younger days, especially when she was on tour a lot. Um, so, like, you know, I mean, firstly, the, the, you're going to see someone pop up and be like, you know, the thing that pe what people don't know about the Queen was that she was playing arenas and selling out stadiums before MTV had even heard of her. Um, and, like, this, some of the stories that you hear about what went on after the summit meetings and the shows on board the Royal Yacht Britannia, well, they would make Vince Neil blush. I mean, we've all heard the stories about Def Leppard and the, and the, and the, you never people. played in the round like Leopard. No, no, no. but, um, you know, nobody, but, nobody did it before Leopard. No, no not morally. No. Yeah. I mean, I just, what, I mean, that many castles in that many closets, it's got to be skeletons. <laughs> they're, they're buried there somewhere. Yeah. You know, like, territory, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. You don't want to get sued, do you? No, you no, no. Who do you have to worry about? Is it, have you passed that marker now? I guess some of the things he said. But who who do you think would have would have produced the Queema if she was going to have a producer? Yeah, like for like for her albums. I think well, rock. <laughs> I will say this though, and I've been saying this for years. I've I've kind of like anticipated the death of the Queen because not not for her death necessarily, but when Charles gets crowned, the um coronation uh music that they play is uh Zardok the Priest by George Friedrich Handel. And that's actually the, the basis that they sampled that classical piece for the Champions League theme. So when they play it and everyone's watching it, they're gonna be like, oh why are they playing the Champions League tune? You know, I, I guarantee someone's gonna say that. But go away and listen to it. It's called Zardok the Priest. You'll see that you'll see the sample is exact almost exactly the same. Sounds like a metal thing. Yeah. Well, it's a good job because this this podcast has already gone off on a very non-metal tangent. Yeah. Right, are we, are we done? Are we done with the Queen? Well, we're good. I'm glad, I'm glad you guys got out of the way early. Yeah, I mean, we we, we can always come back to it next week on the bonus no, no, episode. No, we, <laughs> we really don't need to. Although they, you know, with no football this weekend, there's not much left to do, is there? So it's possible. I've lost my train of thought already. Now, thanks for that. <laughs> Uh, the Spinal Tap tribute, uh, Spinal Tap tribute, the Spinal Tap sequel um, is now sort of gathering pace, um, and there's some stuff coming out about what it's going to be all about, and you know the, the sort of concept behind it and, and everything like that. I, I think the more I read about it, the more I think you know what it might actually be. It might actually be pretty fucking funny. It could be terrible. It could be, it could be genius. It's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna divide a lot of people, I think. But I think we're all, we're all gonna watch it, aren't we? We're yeah. I was trying to think if there are any other examples of things like this that have, have where there's been a massive gap. Um, that well, lot- Bill and Ted, and that was dodgy. Yeah, it's a ridiculous no. comparison, but I really like Cobra Kai. <laughs> The uh, season five starts tonight. I've just watched yeah. the first couple of episodes, and yeah, yeah. I, I, it switches your brain off. And, and I like the little it. nods to to the, the song. Well, there was a song like they did a song from like a cock rock song in a Mexican style. I can't remember what it was in one of the uh, in one of these new episodes. Oh yeah, I, I know. Like, oh, that's such a cool little subtle nod. When, um, they, um, yeah, he's, he's walking around Mexico in a Cinderella t-shirt, isn't he? It's, yeah. Uh, and at the end of the last se- season, they played Switch. Was it sixty-five by Leopard? That instrumental. Yeah. Whoever whoever does this show, they they know their stuff. Apparently, they tried to get ACDC, but they couldn't afford them. They couldn't well, afford to use music. It's a pretty it's a pretty low budget show, so it's not surprising. I was like, yeah, I'd rather have Leopard, deep cuts. Yeah, did not it? Um, the Spinal Tap sequel. So the the uh, the sort of premise that's, that's coming out um spinal tap have been forced to reunite years after a bit of split to play one last show as part of a contractual obligation following the death of their long-suffering manager ian faith um who apparently passed away or the actor passed away in 2021 um yeah i i, I think in in the current in the current climate and with everything that's going on in music now i think 
it's got the potential to be really funny. If they use the material right and they use the current musical climate right, it could I think be it, I think it will be. They did, didn't they do something around... They, did they reform for Live 8? <laughs> I remember they did a little film around there, but it's not online anywhere. It when, was one, um, it was yeah, it was one of those sort of shows, wasn't it? Buffner was keeping miniature horses, yeah, and you can't find it anywhere. I, was, I, I just think they're still funny. They can all, you know, um, I can't remember the name of the actor, but I think they got to they just they got to do the right thing and get some get some other writers in because you know times have changed and they want to make sure their current um, current trends are all catered for and whatnot. But TV, yeah, it's got, it's got to have a relevance and it definitely got a relevance to the current trends. Mm it to work yeah i think yeah i think it will i i've got hope for that actually i think yeah i, mean, I have it's all it's all been pretty good hasn't it i mean you know um best in show was decent best in show was genius i hope there's some great you know obviously the, the originals quoted so much it's just got out some good quotes i mean a quote the original line on a daily basis so <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's got a few good quotes in it well, it's um, it's going to be completely ad lib, the same as the first film. Right, cool. So I think if yeah. you're taking the script out of it, the potential's massive. They're, they're comedy geniuses at the end of the day. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. I've got faith in them. Those three. What is your um? Definitely. What's your favourite bit of the film? Spinal Tap. You, you lick my love pump is 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 probably <clears throat> my favourite part. And the and and the sandwiches in the rider as well. Just, just that that's I, 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 every time. it's just like it, it's it's a really like tiny one line it's like when they're at Elvis's grave and it's like oh I kind of put things into perspective yeah, it's it's too, too much, much fucking perspective. perspective yeah it's, uh, there's <laughs> a lot of really nice little subtleties yeah and I like the uh like when he met when they meet Duke Vane and uh they get when he just his manager goes yeah we're gonna go and wait out in the lobby that's another one i use a lot there, there's something there's something about the uh the hotel manager that they're sort of shouting at oh yeah he gets called a twisted old fruit and he's like i am as god made me sir yeah that's, that's just, another good one it's brilliant yeah, there's a lot of lovely really nice little things I like, I like the bit i like the bit when he's when they're talking to the manager and he's like he's got the cricket bat and he's like oh this was given to me by so elizabeth windsor and he's like oh it's it's it's, it's certainly totemistic it's some somewhat of an affectation and then and it cuts to him just using the bat to like destroy the tv and like pin people against the wall it's <laughs> just like it's funny you know a lot of bands relate to it it's it's on the money in so many ways um sure yeah. like Dan Spitz from Anthrax once said that he'd like he'd gone to get a banana during a drum solo or something and had got lost backstage. <laughs> he couldn't get back again. So it's like it happened, you know, they are on the money. I'd say what I would love to see a documentary about Dan Spitz. Yeah. And what the watchmaking and all that. Yeah. yeah. He's one of the best in the industry, apparently. Uh, that's really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he said, I think he's just started it up again. Again, like he started a new company. Fair play. That kind of puts a different spin on the album Persistence in Time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but like, didn't um, when they when they pre premiered, Sp this is Spinal Tap. 
didn't like it was it Biff Bifford from Saxon just kind of walked out because it was like two on the nose or something. Yeah, because yeah, didn't heard, didn't they that. go around with like Biff Bifford and like the, the bit where they get lost is definitely taking piss out of Saxon. I think yeah, I think the Stonehenge thing's based on um Sabbath as well. Yeah, Sabbath, I think yeah. Isn't it yeah. like the Born Again era. Yeah, in the I don't know for sure, but um yeah, <laughs> it's like. It's yeah. it's almost it's almost like it has to be real. You can't write that kind of shit. It's that ridiculous. It needs to be real. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just 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 hope that whatever they do next, it's it's got a modern feel to it, that, and they're, they're taking the current the current musical climate in consideration when they do it. So, we'll see. But it's not till twenty twenty four. So, plenty oh of wow, it's some way off then. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a while off yet. So, but that'll be it before we know it. Fucking the way things are going. Um. Did anybody read this little story of Brian Tatler from Diamond Head saying that he'd have had to got a different job if Metallica had never covered Am I Evil? Yeah, I thought that was a really nice kind of humble thing for him to say. Yeah. Like really, you know, that's another way of looking at it. I mean, the other way is that they might not have sounded the way they did without him. True. And, 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 and Mustaine included. Um, so that was quite humble. But yeah, I suppose it's... It's true. It's given them, you know, that's what they're named to a lot of people for. But yeah, you can definitely when you when you listen to them, you can really hear them in Metallica. Yeah, yeah. The um the the, the riff after the the intro solo and Am I Evil in particular, it's it's just so Metallica, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's fair play to them to come out and say it after especially, all these years. Especially those first two albums. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's definitely. Well, did you? Did you listen to the Dave Mustaine interview on Joe Rogan? I've listened to that because Joe Rogan interviews are too long. I haven't got the time. I, I just can't stomach the, that. Um, I don't. I, I don't. I don't <laughs> mind when, when, Joe, when Joe Rogan when Joe Rogan interviews people like, um, for example, he, he's got a really good one where he interviews Lennox Lewis, and that's quite interesting. And there's that um, Canadian Indian comedian uh, Russell Peters, I think. And I didn't know this, but he was actually him and Lennox Lewis are best friends, so he's on the show too. That's a good episode. Now the episode with Mustaine, I haven't watched it all the way through, but they do start talking about. He goes into depth about Metallica stealing his staff and all this kind of stuff. It's very predictable, Mustaine. What do you mean, Metallica? Um, you know that when he's credited on um, "Ride the Lightning" and "Kill 'Em All," and he told them when he well, was, was he in Metallica. Yeah, yeah, apparently, yeah. yeah it was. Um, he never mentions it. But like, and then like, there's the Joe. But then you watch a Joe Rogan episode with um, like the Undertaker was on that a few a, a year or two ago, and Joe Rogan has spent years taking the piss out of Russian, and then when the Undertaker comes on, Rustin's amazing and it's really cool, and yeah, it's just like well, there's, you know, there's, there's been some interesting back and forth between um Mustaine and Ellison. I've noticed. Um, oh yeah, that 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 relationship's really healthy. Was it Ellison's been really? saying being kicked out of Metallica, uh, being kicked out of Megadeth was akin to being kicked out of hell. Yeah, he. I mean, he came back as I guess he came back as a hired guy because he tried to sue Mustaine. He, once you leave a band like that, like Dave Lombardo, you're taken back on. I I understand as like a not like a session guy. You're not a partner anymore of the business. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I don't know if Megadeth. I guess he was a partner when he was in the band because he, he goes so far back. I don't I don't know how it worked, but I guess he came back under different terms. So. And he tried to write music, didn't he? And it, it was yeah. thrown out, wasn't it? So, yeah. I mean, Mustaine will throw people under the bus like there's no tomorrow. So yeah. 
Um, but he's always interesting to listen to, Mustaine, no matter what he's saying. I can't help myself. He's just a fascinating individual to me. That's that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have I haven't heard the new record in full yet, so I can't even comment on that. Um did you see the new the new Elephant's new band and he's got he's got um Chris Poland and Jeff Young? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's that's Jeff Young, you know, so so far so good. Is a massive. Well, I don't know. Can we call it underrated? But it is an interesting album. Like he oh. was a really good player, and it's a shame he only did one album. And obviously, Poland's amazing. It's funny that they've all grouped together. I don't know what Mustaine hasn't weighed in on that yet. No, he hasn't. No, I'm wait, I, no one's asked him about it. I, just, I, I just, really I just, want to know what he thinks about. Well, you can imagine what he thinks about that. I just, I just remember finding Chris Poland's like. Uh, solo album in Lost in Music in Camborne, Return to Metropolis, <laughs> just, and it's just it's just him like you know whittling for like thirty minutes, but on different songs. It's good. It's good. He does play jazz. Yeah, jazz yeah. Jazz guy. Um, I have I have given the the new Megadeth album a couple more listens this week, and it doesn't get any better, unfortunately. So. But um, Mustaine has come out in the last couple of days and said that he's uh, he's definitely got more. Uh, what was the word he used? Stomping albums in him. So yeah, we'll look forward to. He that. Sounds hungry, doesn't he? He sounds hungry, yeah. but these the songs aren't there. That's the unfortunate thing. Um, it just it just there's just no hooks to it. It was so nothing. Um, nothing really sort of drew me in. No hook I, in I, mouth. No I hook in just, mouth. No. Sorry. Just give a shout out again to one of our friends of the podcast, Ian in North Carolina, he saw Megadeth a few days ago on the new, on the new tour, took his mom with him. His mom said right. that um, most of the songs sound the same. Um, <laughs> but she enjoyed the gig. Um, and, but no, Ian told me, and I'm still waiting for more information from him, but he told me that they only played 10 songs and they were supporting five, five finger death punch. Five finger death punch. Yeah. Which is and so they played. So for example, the last song they played was, um, Moody Wars, and then they played. They opened with the Hangar 18. They played Peace Cells. I think they played two tracks off the new album. They played Dystopia. Um, it was a bit of a, mi- uh, a hit and miss set from from the look of it, from my perspective. Um, I'm not actually sure what they actually sounded like, but he, I think he alluded that they sounded pretty good. But that was his. I think he said it. That was his first time seeing Megadeth. So, um, how do we? How, how do we feel about a band like Megadeth supporting a band like Five Finger Death Punch? I wrote a short blog about this <laughs> towards the end of last year and um, bef- before we we kind of branched into this podcast. And I kind of get it because obviously Five Finger Death Punch, especially in America, are commercially, are, you know, they're quite big. They, they're quite a major selling act now. But it still doesn't sit right with me that a band like Megadeth is supporting a band like Five Finger Death Punch. Regardless of commercial status at the moment, it doesn't. I think really... it's cra- it's crazy to me that Megadeth on, but this stage in their career that they didn't become this big headliner. Yeah, I mean when you compare it to the other band that we, Mustaine was allegedly in, you got your <laughs> word for it, Padre. Um, it's mad, and it. But I think it says a lot about the mistakes Megadeth have made. I mean, they haven't held a lineup together. Well, Metallica have. They've got the songs. They should be the headliner. Bands like Lamb of God should be supporting them. Five yeah. Finger Death. They, there's no reason why Megadeth, but well, there is. There are reasons clearly. 
there's numerous reasons why um so i think it's a real shame to see that they haven't become this like huge brand and i guess they they just see it as well we've got to play to the people you know big crowds and it that gets them there but i think it's sad that a band with that kind of legendary back catalog let's forget about super collider um do you think they, sad. um like, do but you that's think... like super collider is part of the reason like what the why did they come off endgame and decide to put out super collider i've never even listened to that when the, that isn't like a reload move that is insanity <laughs> they've, not had that, they've not had that continuity that's it no. I mean, they've not been mega deaf for since 97 really <clears throat> no that's a risk so fair point you need that continuity you need that stability to to, to keep going uh, metallica have had that do you think they've um do you think they fall i mean this is obviously it's, it's kind of fancy, but have they fallen down the pecking order in the big four? Are they now at the bottom of the four? If Slayer was still around, do you put Megadeth at the bottom of the four? It wouldn't. I don't think they'd be they, bottom of the big four. I think they'd be three. Yeah, I think you'd be right. I think Slayer probably had a bigger profile, didn't they? Yeah. They could headline a package tour. Well, I just can't believe that. Yeah, it's just. It's a, it's a, I I really wanted Megadeth. You know, no matter what I feel about some of the things Mustaine said. They should be like in that right up there. Have they yeah. ever have they ever headlined Backen? Uh I think they have in the last sort of 10, 11 years. Um, but the thing is they 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 do headline festivals across Europe, but festivals in Europe do differ in size. You know, they're headlining Bloodstock next year, for instance, and they have done before, but that's like 20,000 people. They're not going to headline a download, are they, of 70, 80,000 people? And I suppose if if they were to go to Germany or Sweden, they might headline to 40,000, 50,000 people, but they wouldn't play a show that size off their own back. So King King Diamond, I mean, Merciful Fate, sorry, headline Bloodstock a few weeks back to 20,000 people. Merciful Fate, if they played their own show in the UK, are going to do, at best, an academy size, sort of three, four thousand. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's all it's all kind I mean, of relative. It's great if Megadeth had a different story, they would have been headlining download, but yeah, back catalogue members, whatever reason, it, it's it's not going to happen. Which that is crazy, is. isn't it? It's that's crazy. Like they should have been a download headliner. It's it's mad. yeah. I mean, because we saw them in two thousand and five, and they were they weren't even up high up the bill. They played during the afternoon. And they played what it's like three o'clock in the afternoon, so it's only three hours after this, the main stage went on. Yeah, and you just I'd, like, I'd like to hear him over a, an hour and a half, two hour set, whether his voice would hold up as well, because you know there are. Yeah, that's yeah. going to be a lot of strain on it, isn't it? Talking about um, Megadeth's sort of heydays, I kind of I suppose kind of takes us into you know what we want to talk about tonight, really, with with the nineties, because you know the early part of the nineties when Megadeth were at there, arguably at their peak, although I don't know if arguably is the right word. I think they were definitely at their peak, certainly musically. So we want to break the 90s down into three sections. We want to look at the early 90s, um, you know, everything that happened sort of between 1990 and 1993, coming out of the 80s, coming out of hair metal and cock rock. And, you know, thrash was kind of not winding down, but going into a different kind of wave. and you know, the, the, I suppose the the heavy metal climate was was changing. It was becoming a bit more alternative. 
Um, there was more sort of crossover bands like Suicidal Tendencies. You know, bands from from outside the states were starting to get, you know, were starting to make moves. Bands like Entombed. Um, I don't know where to start really with the early nineties. I suppose we need to kind of look at grunge first and and the apparent killing off of hair metal. But the question that I've seen raised in a couple of articles and things in the last couple of days is hair metal was already on its way down. So was grunge just the next wave that was coming along in the same way that hair metal came along and killed off, you know, the sort of Sabbathy stuff in the seventies and, and, and blues rock and the deep purples and all that kind of thing. So did it, did grunge kill off hair metal? It's the first question I'm going to ask, I suppose. Did that actually happen? It, it delivered the final blow. Okay. But I, I would absolutely agree uh, that hair metal, for want of a better phrase, was, was on its way out by the end, of a, the end of a decade. As far as I'm concerned, thinking about it, there was one other album that actually pretty much beat the absolute crap out of it. Which was? Appetite for Destruction. <laughs> yeah, I mean... We, we, I know we, we, we sort of briefly, we briefly mentioned the fact that the Guns N' Roses obviously come out of that scene, the LA scene, but Appetite for Destruction stands out by itself and it made the rest of hair metal look like a joke. Yeah. Didn't it? That, that was, it was a seismic album for a number of reasons. And you gotta, you gotta recognize how effortless these guys made it. It was a debut album and I know they've been kicking about for a while, but they dropped that after a few years of, of hair metal doing, doing fairly well and doing good numbers and they're not making much effort in terms of the actual look. They're, they're throwing a bit of leopard skin on. They're barely putting any eyeliner on. They're focusing on the music. Yeah. There's probably more drugs there, but they're, they're spending a lot more time on the music than in the mirror. And they drop that. You've probably got this collective realization amongst a lot of those bands thinking, Oh fuck, we can't compete with that. No, yeah, we're 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 not we yeah we're not going to be that good, and if you think about the next couple of years, what did we actually get in the in the late eighties? Really, um, we we only bullet got two, boys. Sorry, bullet <laughs> boys. <laughs> we, when we, did um Doctor Feelgood was what eighty nine ninety? We only got two more decent albums from that whole hair metal thing in the in the end of eighties. One was Doctor Feelgood, Ronnie Crew, and the other was Skid Row. Yeah. And that yeah. was it. That was, you know, it was a vacuum by that point because the, the stuff that was getting, you know, you know the, the dregs, the, the dodgy power ballads from all your poisons and Cinderella's, rat, rat weren't doing much. Um, and, you know, it, it had, what, five, six years, which is a, generally how these cycles turn out with a lot of scenes. So yeah. I think you've got this point where there is a vacuum and, you know, a lot of alternative stuff is already starting to happen. Um, but it needs something... <clears throat> very cohesive to take full advantage but yeah I'm, i i think appetite for destruction did the did the significant damage um for my money well you know it's it, it's like you can map glam metals rise and descent in, in basically in the eight years that reagan was president so no because it's yeah. like Reagan, you know, was like a kind of a very much, uh, you know, go go and consume, buy things, spend money. You know, the the feel good times are back. America's on the on the rise again, and you've got like a, this kind of party 
ethos and i mean like if you've got a scene that's predicated on such <laughs> debauchery that you know drink drugs women you know kind of merging the lines between how a male rock star should look like whether they should look feminine or masculine so i think it was always going to you know burn itself out to success you know because you know if, you, if you're in motley Crue in 1980 and you're doing like you're doing the things that they were doing with the, the, the drink and the drugs, you're, you're going to burn yourself up. I mean, by 88, 89, 90, wasn't it, Dr. Uh, Dr. Feelgood, the first album is, the first song's called Terror in Tinseltown and it's Kickstart My Heart. And that's about Nikki Six ODing. So by the time they're writing that, they, they're trying to get clean, but then they've got nothing else, they've got nothing to say because all of their material is about that kind of debauched lifestyle to a certain extent and the shock value. But after eight years of that kind of drink drugs, pentagrams all that kind of stuff the leather the dating the baywatch stars all that kind of stuff people are just say, oh we've seen all this stuff before like you know what, what else is new and then like you say guns and roses come along and it's it's not they don't look a different way they just they're just better they're better musicians right. everything moves in cycles doesn't it look at punk yeah. you know brick rock brick pop whatever you want to call it you know glam everything just has that like five year thing and yeah. I, I, do, I think it was i do think that makes a really good point about Guns and Roses, though. So, like, well, how do you respond to that? Like, and they've got that authenticity. Yeah. Of the other band, they, they just like changed the, the the benchmark. They just came out, called themselves the most dangerous band in the world, and dropped that album, and then left it at that. And the rest well, is there's, no, there's nothing kind of like uh, planned about it. It's just a ragtag group group of guys that obviously had been in the scene. I still don't understand how they did it. Like. You just like I don't know if they do. It was just like magic. What's what's amazing is they they literally broke the um, the MTV switchboard when Welcome to the Jungle um, was played like at midnight, in the middle of the night, midnight, night, yeah. middle of the night, because they'd had problems. I think the uh, the 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 M- there was some some big hot show that did not want that video getting played because they already had a bad reputation and pissed people off. And Geffen were trying to find a way around it. Um, and I think they someone said, Oh, he's he's on holiday or he's busy for the night, so stick it on because it will probably get some good numbers. And they did. And basically the the, the reaction across um California was so so large with all the phone calls coming in, the actual switchboard basically died that night because people wanted to hear it again. No, that says it all. <laughs> Stane, Stane Gossard from Pearl Jam is a pretty good guy. He's quite, he's got quite good perspective on this stuff because he he owned Monty Crew's first album. There's this, like this myth that you know, there's a lot of myths about the grunge hair metal thing. Like there were no solos in grunge nonsense, you know. And he said, you know, that hard rock was stagnating at that point. And he said, you know, that. I love hard rock and I, and I always have, but renewal and rebirth are part of art. You know, that he just saw it as part of the ever-changing thing. And you could, you know, in its way, you know, North West Coast music or grunge, whatever you want to call it, that had its like a five, six year thing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like a mixture of things. I don't, I don't, I think people were ready for something new, weren't they? Yeah, point. I think they probably were. And and if you look back at it, all the bands that get kind of lumped into being grunge bands, certainly look at Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, for instance, they were metal bands. 
You know, yeah. it just happens. Well, to be Alice and James were a, gl- gr- a glam band at the very beginning. Yeah, mm-hmm. I suppose they were. Um, well, I think, they were a bit more glammy. I think as well, you've got to look at the like. So, I mean, so we've 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 discussed a lot about scenes and infrastructure, and you know that word we came up with yesterday, uh, last week, agglomeration and things like that. The natural propensity for for groups and and scenes to congregate around a geographical location. But if you look at it, like, um, so MTV fueled glam rock to a certain extent, because a lot of those bands got a lot of exposure very, very quickly. And that's another reason why they burnt themselves out, because I think a lot of people, they were overexposed and people were like, okay, I've, I've seen this now so many times, what's new? And then if you look at the grunge movement, so if are we saying grunge is like 90 to 96, roughly? No, I got grunge. Probably not I, I, I would say 88 to 94, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what's happening in about 94, 93? Internet. You, you, you've seen the emergence of internet. So MTV pushes glam rock to the forefront. Old rock and grunge gets a kick or some kind of impetus from the emergence of the internet, especially around like, things like college campuses and universities because those who have had more access to it i mean i i don't know about you when did you get the internet at your house for the first time i think mine was 95 95 i was still at hale school 97 99 no it's one of the few times my mother was actually in front of the curve (laughs) oh man i I thought you were impressive having it in the halls at university yeah I didn't, use, I didn't use it regularly till, and I'll and I tell you what, I, I never properly used the internet till the day, the afternoon we went to see therapy at the Astoria. I remember that. That was, two, and that was in 2000. The 2000? Yeah. But no, no, do you remember? It. I had that, um, I think it was definitely when I was still at secondary school. Do you remember I found that, I found that version of Master of Puppets that was seven minutes long because it played it so fast. It wasn't eight minutes. <laughs> I was like, just in fact, I, Megadeth were the claimed to be the first band with a website. Really? Yeah. And you said, you know, they had a, they were they were on it. Yeah, they were there. Bring well, us I did, well yeah. from what I remember, I didn't get the internet till around about. I think it was ninety nine, um, and I remember racking up a massive phone bill, downloading music from Napster. So, sorry, Lars, but. But also, I mean, Cobain died, you know, that was a big thing. Yeah. He was the commercial icon, I suppose. So one one of the biggest band in the scene is gone. Immediately yeah, gone. Just like that. And and I think, you know, Pearl Jam went to ground. They decided to to not play the commercial game for their own survival and fair play to them. Well, they didn't. They take Everybody on. When did they take away. on Ticketmaster? When did they yeah. take on Ticketmaster? That I was later, but if you look at like Veda, kind of took over the band more. It was more, of, and and they they went to ground even by you know Vitalogy. They stopped doing video. No code. Yeah, yeah, just wouldn't play the game. So they all did what they needed to do. They were still all putting out good music, but um, yeah, I think that people moved on didn't they like the, the the true fans stayed with the bands and um but it it possibly ended before it should have but you know that as, as usual with these things the labels just went mad signing up anyone that sounded anything like something linked with seattle yeah yeah 
as as is always the case. Though. Yeah, and then they, those bands weren't as good. But it stands to reason that that I know. Obviously, you know, we've lost the likes of Lane Staley, we've lost Chris Cornell, obviously lost Kurt Cobain. But you look at Pearl Jam. I mean, wherever Pearl Jam go, they play to enormous crowds. They've kind of transcended yeah. what yeah, the they're the one. Was. They're the survivors. Yeah, yeah, very much. So. Um, that, that's that's one thing that really. So going back to what you said about Lane Staley and Chris Cornell, that's one thing that really bothers me because, like, you know, a band like Motley Crue is still touring and. Lane Staley and Chris Cornell have departed. You know, it's just say like, it sucks. I'm sorry. I'd, I'd much rather to have Alice in Chains still going with Lane and Chris Cornell because I never got the chat. I've never seen Alice in Chains live because obviously living abroad, I've never had the chance. And I miss I miss Soundgarden and Soundgarden were one of my favourite bands. And I, I I think Super Unknown and Bad Motorfinger are amazing albums, and I I still listen to it now. And I think this this just sounds fresh. Um. There's, there's Jesus some weird, Christ Post is a fantastic song. There's some weird mysteries, though. It's like, why did so many of those, why did so many great bands spring up around the same time in the same part of the country? And also, why are so many of the singers dead now? You know, and there's there's got to be like, I'm sure there's a thesis on it somewhere. It, yeah, it, it comes down to Seattle and where it was, because, um, I mean, firstly, in terms of the climate, um, this is where it's located. It's grey. It's miserable. I mean, it may as well be Britain, quite frankly. Manchester. Uh, yeah, but it's 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 cold. It's great, and it's and it's like that. You get like a week of sunshine for the whole year, so you're probably going to have this general melancholy. I mean, there's going to be a significant lack of vitamin D for Christ's sakes. So um, that I can tell you now, firsthand, that does affect you. So um, I mean, it's always been a fairly I don't. I, I, I suppose progressive uh, city in some ways because they just they, they just they, they set themselves up just before the civil war and they just got on with it really. I mean they had a big logging industry and also shipbuilding for a bit, but they they've been involved in technology and a lot of uh, startups for the last forty years. So yeah. they've always and they've always done that. So they've they've always you know it's never been destitute like Detroit, but it's never been you know, sort of full on like LA. It's just, it's been solid. So they, they've yeah, but why? Okay, okay. Take Detroit for then for, as an example, because again, we keep coming back ever since we brought it up the first time when we were talking about Sweden is the importance of the scene, what the yeah. scene provides. So go back, go to Detroit. What did you have from Detroit? You had Motown. Well, why did you have Motown? Well, you had, because you had, factories and because you have industrialization will then suck in people from periphery states because for jobs so then you've got um large numbers of people who were either former slaves descended from former slaves they had that culture inbred in them so they're going to go down to the cities where they kind of do a job that mimics something that they might might their forefathers might be familiar with kind of on the production line working for low wages how do you then express yourself outside of your job? You've got music, right? So there's that. I think there's that. So again, maybe the, the scene in Seattle. I mean, I think could you make the case that again, if you look at the Bay Area, it doesn't take much for these scenes to start sucking in people and then and helping them forge into bands. Like it only takes. Look at. I mean, like in New York, it was Johnny Zazula, and then in on the West Coast, you had Brian Slagle. And, and they were the progenitors of the Bay Area thrash and then or the New York thrash scene. There must have been people in Seattle 
just as like there was like Peter Tangent from Hypocrisy in Gothenburg, who yeah are, yeah well there was C- Season Silver brought together you know Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and there was the bands would support each other you know there's a link between the Melvins and Nirvana, but even that doesn't explain why ridiculously talented people were in the same part of the- I don't I don't I just think it was just chance. It's it's the big the big factor I think they said a lot of the time was that they didn't get tours going to Seattle because of where they're located you, you it's literally off a beaten track a lot of other parts of America bands have to go through towns to get to the big cities and whatnot so they'll it'll be much more expansive but Seattle was the arse end of nowhere unless you were a big band but wanted to do Vancouver as well just across the border what do you mean Seattle doesn't get tours? Have you never seen live shit binge and purge? Yes, <laughs> three that's, CDs. That's, <laughs> but that's your rarity. That's the thing is that they didn't really get small bands that might have, you know, played all the dirt venues in the in the deep south and the the east coast. Um, they, they never got that. They so made they, their they, own scene. Yeah, and it was a mixture of people. It was a mixture of all kinds of teenagers and young people just saying, "No one's coming to play us," mm. and they were they were mates with each other. Because they were all just making music, and a lot of it was crap for years. But they were just doing it themselves. Because things had... are important. They do. They yeah. foster things. They definitely foster something that you can't design. But this is a question that we keep bringing up on this podcast, and one day we'll actually talk about it in detail. Is does does a scene create the music, or does the music create the scene? And I suppose grunge is one of those that grunge and probably the LA strip stuff in the eighties is are the two biggest biggest examples of that where does, well, the, does band, it come from it's definitely inspire each other yeah, musicians yeah. inspire each other it, yeah. it can be competitive sometimes but it can also be just like oh you know it makes you feel like you can be something if you see yeah. so, someone you know doing something it's it's really important you can't i don't think it happens in a vacuum even the beatles didn't happen in a vacuum you know there, there, there was the remoteness but there was a community in that remoteness as, as an saying you know but it is incredible i think it's still incredible to me to think of the amount of talent in that city and in that area it's crazy and and it's so sad to think you know people like mark lanagan have gone now and they keep that we're still they're still losing people from that scene yeah it's it's tragic it's horrible the way lane staley passed away as well because you know he was everyone knew he had dependency issues and he was just basically was holed up in a, in a, in an apartment somewhere, and he just and they mm. didn't they find out that he had stopped requesting money, and then they twigged that. That, that was you. almost like people could see it coming. Like Chris Cornell was the one that just just was like oh, a gut no. punch. I, yeah. I, I went to see him on a solo tour, and I thought this guy's got it together. He's in. He's got this back catalogue. He's got this amazing status as a respected singer. He's got family. He's got everything. You know, he's got Soundgarden back together. He, he could have Audio Slave back together. And then he, he died. And it was like, Jesus, you know, it was like, wow, it, 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 it eventually got him, the black dog or whatever you want to call it, you know. And uh, that was just shocking. The fact that you just didn't see that one coming. No. I mean, with Lane Staley, it was years of addiction, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying that it was... You know, foregone conclusions too strong, but it was looking like he wasn't going to come out of it. It's been cursed from day one. I mean, I've been listening to the Mother Love Bone album this week, 
and it's a great album. Yeah. Um, and it, and the thing is, you can see this talk. You know, they killed off hair metal. You can see there's an element of that. They they liked that old school stuff. They yeah. Liked, they, you know, there was a bit of glam there. There, there, uh, there was. Yeah. Was the, yeah. Mother Love Bone cross cross both. Yeah. Of them. Yeah. They do. Absolutely. And the thing is, if you listen to all of those those bands from Seattle, they all sounded different to each other. It, it wasn't a grunt grunge is this. No. no that, that's got, a good point. Yeah. No, all that's kids, the, that's the crazy thing about grunge. It's like it's yeah. not like saying punk. Um, the the they're nothing like each other, are they? You yeah. know, it's you got punk, you got metal, you got psychedelic rock, garage rock. There's some soul and country dotted in there as well, because again, they're they're just into everything. All but these kids and, and young people. It was just, it was real. I think the it, authenticity yeah. of it was it, it was real, and that's what hangs you know brings it together. But yeah, they you know the Soundgarden were like the Beatles meets Sabbath meets God knows what, you know, Nirvana were very, you know, were very influenced by the Melvins. And you could hear, you know, on Bleach, there's a lot of Sabbath, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose the way to look at it then is, is hair metal was coming to an end. And then people are looking for, like you said, something with a bit of authenticity, something a bit real. And once, once um, music fans lock on to, to like one particular band, They'll then go looking for other bands that are similar, and that's where the could, that's where could it kind you of say, pace, isn't it? Could you could you say like going back to this idea of authenticity? Now we've obviously we've discussed this before on previous episodes, where especially the working class episode, where we were discussing the fact that um, bands that are con- considered to be inauthentic will never be embedded into the scene because the scene is predicated on a set of rules and expectations that are formed almost not, not deliberate, not, not kind of consciously, but unconsciously in the collective. Um, so therefore, for example, if you've got a, an entire scene that's, that's used kind of blurring the line between um, gender styles, like the hair and the makeup and everything of glam metal and hair metal. And then that, when it started off, that was shocking. And then people are like, okay, I've, I've seen this now. I'm not looking to be shocked. I just want to see something that's a bit more down to earth, you know, oh. a bit more kind of tangible. And then grunge yeah. fit build, build. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, hair metal was about escapism, and it wasn't really about going into yourself. It wasn't about what was going on inside of you, you know. And yeah, and those, you know, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, they were reflecting on themselves and digging deep inside themselves and whatever turmoil and very very different you know what people gravitate but they the thing the songs are good and you to be fair to hemel there were good songs yeah there were and i suppose that comes first you know just remember like what what is it d snyder said on that channel 4 tv show uh the top 10 stadium rock bands of all time and they, he's talking about poison and there's that really funny quote by mustang where he says poison's first album should have been called look what the cat stepped in um, and then you've got D Snyder, and he's talking about Poison playing the Grammy Awards, and he's just like the arrogance, the sheer arrogance. He goes, "They're up there on stage playing every rose as a thorn, like they've just written Stairway to Heaven." And he's just like, "It's one chord, it's one fucking chord." <laughs> it's just like, and I think that you know that the, the songs, some of them were good, but they were very lightweight in in terms of musicality. And- but it's Weird, but they're getting a new appreciation now. They're on that state, they were on that stadium tour, and yeah. people are loving them. 
Yeah. And, you know, you think, oh, they were throwaway, but actually they've come out of it arguably a better live band than, than Motley Crue. They weren't, they're not in this top billing, but from what I've seen, <laughs> you know, you know what Vince Neil, uh, the story's about all that. But um, yeah. it's weird because I, I, I dismissed Poison, but now I'm kind of, they've hung around, they've hung in there. Like a bad smell. But yeah, that is, I remember <laughs> that's that episode, that is funny, that episode. That's the, uh, Sebastian back when he meets Axel Rose goes, where are you, man? Why are you so late? He goes, taking a shower, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> like leaving thousands of people on stage waiting for him. Yeah. That's the, that, also, the other quote from that is, again, so if anyone's listening, you can Google it. It's on YouTube. Channel 4, top 10 stadium rock bands of all time. There's the line from Duff McKagan. I've been all around the USA, man. I just don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. oh man um so i mean that that was grunge i suppose off the back of grunge a lot of like i suppose you want to call it alt rock bands got picked up as well and and you had then then you had like splinter type scenes popping up all over the place and you had raised against the machine and you had um red hot chili peppers and you had the whole Lollapalooza thing in the states as well I think we need we can't talk about the early 90s without talking about the first Rage Against the Machine album. There was nothing like that at the time. Nothing had come before it. They were in your face, you know, aggressive, but at the same time, really accessible. You can kind of put it not to the same level, but you can kind of put it in the same in, in, in the same conversation as Appetite for Destruction with the impact that it had on its scene. If you, if you, if you know yeah, what I mean. unbelievable. Just like lighting in a bottle, that was. Yeah. Just, I, I don't know how how that happened. I mean, I've, I've, I've interviewed Tom Morello about it, and even, like, that doesn't really explain it. Like, he started, they, him and uh, Brad Wilt were jamming, and the others came in. It's just like, the way they tell it, it just happened. And it's, it's so... I can't, I, I, you know, he, he wanted to be like a DJ in a band, which is a completely different way of approaching the guitar. So that that was a massive point, um, a massive starting point to it. But unbelievable. That album, you know, you guys listen to that album. It's still incredible, isn't it? It still it, sounds like... It hasn't dated. Where the hell has this come from? It's still relevant as well. You know, with, with everything that goes on in the world, they, they they still got something to say. Raising Against Machine are one of those bands that could disappear for 10 years, pop up, do five shows and still have something to say. Yeah. We still I don't think anyone time. touches them on a live stage. I don't think anyone can touch them. No. I, I, Maybe I, if Zach's sitting down. It was, it was um, <laughs> the time, obviously, grunge, grunge kicking off. So anger. A lot of, you know, anger was, was good in rock music um, as a drive. Um, but you've got you've got things happening in hip hop, and of course, around that time, um, you've got the Rodney King yeah. uh, revelations. Yeah. That's exactly what they were protesting against, weren't they? Police corruption, for example. Yeah. But but all, all the stuff that goes around. Yeah, but again, like was... you're dealing with if you've got people that are performing live in '94, '95, then that means you've got people who were born. 
73, 74, maybe 1972. So you've got these are people that would have experienced uh, Watergate. And I think you can't underestimate the impact that had on a lot of Americans' view of their own democracy and their and how much their faith was rattled that you could have such a such a massive conspiracy at the very uh, top of government that kind of subverted a lot of their um, institutions and you know eroded a lot of faith and you know these people would have, would have grown up then and then they would have seen Reagan and you know with the and then and you've also got at the same time you've got Thatcher and Reagan you've got the Reaganomics you've got the, the kind of in, the, the the dawning of neoliberalism and then they're getting to like 18 19 20 and they've, they've they find themselves on a platform and then they're singing about forces that they can't necessarily put names to but it's just they're very angry at what these forces are doing to the world that they're living in so um again it's like they don't necessarily put a name to what they're rebelling against it's just it's the machine it's not and what is the machine or what is the uh uh you know is is it is it the man is it something else you know? Yeah, yeah. This is 1992. Yeah, we're talking about with it. Yeah, yeah. Just looking at the albums that that you guys have listed here. Can we erase through the dark? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was vulgar display of power as well. That year, same as Rage. Yeah. Great, great, great album. So when did Cowboys come out? 90, 1990. Yeah. So again, metal changing now, isn't it? Metal's changing as well. That's another band, though, isn't it? Pantera. When they first started out, they were proper hair metal. Yeah. Where's metal at this point? You've got Subtle Arise in '91, Corrosion of Conformity releasing Blind. And oh, oh yeah, you've you skipped over the black album, Steve. I, I, no, <laughs> you, I haven't. You, you tried to get yeah. away with it. You tried to jump. Yeah. Well, just I, down. I suggested that in 1990 you had the second peak of Thrash because you had uh, Persistence of Time, Seasons of the Abyss, and of course Rust in Peace. Yeah. Uh, you also had um, Slaughter in the Vatican by Exorder. Yeah. Uh, as well. I mean, yeah, Painkiller, which was Priest trying to be Thrash, I suppose. Um, as close as they got, yeah. Um, so you got, you got, yeah, like the second peak. We had 86, now we've got 1990. Um, and that was probably that's after that point, Fresh probably started to wind down, but um, yeah, Fresh Fresh is is doing well, and it's and of course that leads into Clash of the Times, doesn't it? With, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not loving this idea of a second peak, Look, <laughs> no, it's like, no, no, listen, it. it, it I, I was it's rearing its head again, isn't it? The problem that we've had with words. Okay. A, a peak is the top of something. You can't re-peak it. Okay. So why don't, why don't we just say 86 <coughs> to 90, that's the peak. All right. Second win then. Yeah, there you go. That's okay. better. Yeah. That's better. Does he police you like this in every episode? Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Not, this is standard. This isn't acceptable, man. You can't. <laughs> I've, I've muted him, so... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Seasons of the Abyss that's a where do we stand where do you guys stand on Slayer's greatest albums because I, I believe that South of Heaven is Slayer's pop album it's also my favourite Slayer album 
It's my favorite song of the album. I'd agree with that. Carrie King, Carrie King doesn't like it so much because I think it's too pop. And by pop, I mean peaking with songcraft. Yeah, and also that he didn't write it. <laughs> he wasn't so involved, was he? Um, I think Seasons in the Abyss is a damn good album. I think oh. any band that can go <laughs> and get filmed in front of the pyramids. Yeah, that's an amazing them. track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And- it is an incredible album, isn't it? it it's um, it's kind of mixing in. It, it It's quite south of heaven in some ways, but it's got a bit more of the up-tempo stuff as well. One, one of my favourite tracks on there is um, Skeletons in Society. I think it's criminally underrated. Um, and then you've also got, I think it's Blood Red is on there. That's a pretty good track. But yeah, I mean, Skeletons in Society has got a great riff. And then obviously Dead Skin Mask. Yeah. Did, um, yeah. did, did Thrash grow up in the early 90s? Yeah. Can, can you even call Slayer Thrash at that point as well? I don't think you can. I mean, Slayer were a thrash band, but I don't think they were playing thrash music then. What is thrash? Can you have mid-paced thrash? Not entire albums, probably not. But I don't know. That's you've opened up a. Like we, we've there. had. We, Sorry, we've I, had. I should, I've come on here and just thrown grenades. <laughs> no, no, no. Because like, when do you remember? Um, I think it was uh, Lowest Creature when they were on. They said that basically, um, Metallica were only a thrash band for the first two albums, and yeah. then we had Tail Gunner on who were saying that Metallica aren't a thrash band anymore. And Steve Hughes said the same thing, I think. He, yeah, they used yeah. to be, but they're not anymore. They're, they're just a band. They're like, a, And then this we've made why. the case that we've made the case that they're, they're legacy bands. Now they're kind of, really, they should just play their back catalogue. My issue with thrash is it's got such strict, you know, parameters of what it is. It's like it very, bands very quickly either outgrow it or just become like, very restrictive in their sound and you know that's the strength i guess if that if you like that sound that's great but the best bands from the thrash era they kind of transcended it didn't they well if you look at the thrash bands that released albums in 1990 so anthrax released persistence in time megadeth released rust in peace slayer released season in the abyss um and testament released souls of black all, all of those albums were a, a, a big leap forward from what yeah. those bands were doing before. So, Persistence is massively underrated as well. It's, yeah. it's a great album. Yeah. And then you've got also got to, factor in, you've got to factor in the fact that um, 1990, well, that was the year of Clash of the Titans, wasn't it? Yeah, so let's talk about Clash of the Titans because that's, that's one of those tours that we all kind of fawn over and would love to have been around, been old enough to... Well, Rob, your brother went, didn't he? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I think he did. I mean, like that would have been so, Slayer, Megadeth. on some of that tour. Were Alice in Chains as well? Yeah, yeah. They were on the American leg. Yeah. On the European okay. leg, it was Suicidal yeah, Tendencies. On the European leg of Clash of the Titans, it was Suicidal Tendencies, Testament, Slayer and Megadeth. And on the American tour, it was Slayer or Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax. Alice in Chains, and I think um, um, Suicidal Tendencies as well. Yeah. And yeah. From yeah. what I read, from what I've read about it, is that Alice in Chains were, started off, they were getting booed and heckled, and but they, they kept at it on that tour. And by the end of the tour, they came out looking really good. So um, what, what did Megadeth have out at this point? 
Rustin in peace. Rustin in peace. Right. Wow. So okay. you've got player to they, the they were a headline. Megadeth with a headlining. Yeah. Yeah, and then slightly something. With regards to um, to Alice in Chains, um, I read some <laughs> quotes from um, from the likes of from Dave Mustaine, from Kerry King. You know that that they were talking about Alice in Chains, and none of them had really heard of them. They didn't really know who they were, and they were just sort of dropped onto the end of this tour. And they all went out and watched them perform. And within a, within a song, they had a thrash crowd just in the palm of their hand because they were so heavy and so in your face that it was, it was almost like it was, it was just, as, just as brutally in your face, just delivered in a very different way. And a th- the thrash crowd just ate it up. So they, they, you know, that's what Alice in Chains were all about at the time, I suppose. They just came into the scene and just, just fucking nailed it. I don't think there's any yeah, other. Yeah, but like, I mean, listen, listen to facelift. Some of the riffs on that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's heavy as fuck. Mm. It's proper fucking heavy, you know. So it's um, there was one show, wasn't there, in the states where Anthrax would add the headline, wasn't it, in um, at Madison Square Garden, because it because it was their homecoming show, and and that was kind of that was Anthrax's kind of big moment, wasn't it? And it probably it probably was the the commercial peak of thrash that album uh, that tour, sorry. After that, it kind of just went went a bit downhill. But it was it was also that was that that it it, it, it punctuated the 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 end of the or the the downturn in the scene because after that they, there were there were some bar- there were some lean years um, for those bands and not uh, well not Megadeth because they had come down to extinction but like for, especially for Slayer and um, uh, Anthrax and Testament there weren't there weren't many other bands coming in were there no. no. That, I mean, you had the death metal scene, but that you can't yeah, say that. Again, again they like you've got on the big. periphery of that scene, when you know you look at bands like, uh, not necessarily Exodus, but like things like bands like Coroner or bands like Cancer, or they were never gonna they they're they're only gonna exist as um, as long as those other bigger bands are, are are being successful. They're like those like small fish that follow whale sharks around and like pick the barnacles off if the whale shark dies those little fish are dead you know it's the same thing i mean hanger on so i don't know it's actually crazy if you think after pantera there weren't who 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 was there i think one one factor that occurred occurred to me is is and this is relevant to i think what's uh what's happening is i think it was a mention of the cold war without going too much into detail one aspect of the cold war is you've got that that um fear of nuclear war it because it was winding down in the late 80s and of course cold war ended in 1991 once you have things like nuclear uh, weapons treaties which was um, end of 87 you've got this maybe change of attitude happening um that fear is diminishing slightly and of course a big theme of thrash is nuclear, nuclear war, war. Absolutely. Yeah. So you take that away. You take that big fear or that big subject matter away and say, actually, this isn't a big, you know, we don't have to worry about this anymore. There's, there's other stuff going on, but, you know, this, this probably isn't going to happen now. You've got a, you know, it, that, that affects things. I mean, you, you had, yeah, you had some great material still knocking about. And that's why you had those great albums. But in some ways, nuclear war as a, as a driving, um, driving material was a bit passe after a certain point. Yeah, it's a fair it's point. Not, it's not a big thing, the death metal, is it? <coughs> I know, I'd never even considered that. That's a really interesting point. So where, yeah. does, um, 
where does death metal come into this thing? So I, I, I'll, I'll hold my hands up. I, you know, I've never been the biggest death metal fan, apart from the odd few bands, but the early 90s, that Florida death metal that was around and was almost at a bit of a peak then, death, victory, morbid angel, cannibal corpse, deicide, you know, cancer as well, I suppose, to a lesser extent. Um, it was at a real, obviously not a commercial peak, it's death metal for fuck's sake, but it was, did that come off the back of thrash? Was thrash not enough for people and death metal was, yeah, you know, looking for the next extreme? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you got to go back to rock and roll. As soon as that happened, people wanted to play faster and heavier straight away. That's, that's, yeah, that's a tradition that, that's always happened. But of course, you're going to get to a point where it just gets a bit too extreme for people. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why rock, classic rock and heavy metal peaked in the 80s, because at that point, you want to get heavier and you want to get faster. You're going to put off a lot of normal people. They'll go up to a certain point. They won't go any further. So, you know, it's only got a minority of people. But but yeah, thrash became death in some ways because people no, I wanted to go even even heavier. I want to get even nastier. Um, and the Gorehounds, who loved horror movies as well, you've got that blend because, you know, horror movie link, as we know, that goes straight back to Sabbath. So in the late 80s, you've got all this, yeah, you've got death and you've got obituary and morbid angel. I honestly, you know, I'm not an expert on death metal. I'm not even a particularly a fan of death metal. It's just, just learning it. But I would love to know why Florida. I really would, the Sunshine State, because it seems so odd. So... But yeah, that, that bubbles that bubbles under and you end up in a point where it's still going and it's obviously just worked on itself and it's done well. So by 92, yeah, it's it's at its creative peak at least. But not, not just death metal, you've got, I suppose, British death metal, which is grindcore, because that's kind of come from punk. <coughs> but it's it's kind of it's the other way around. Sort of death metal was fresh, you know, and punk getting more, more nasty, and grindcore was punk going towards the metal bit and getting nasty. Um, so you had Napalm Death doing their thing for a while, and you ended up in this strange position in 92 where a band called Extreme Noise Terror, Noise Terror. Yeah. teamed up with the KLF, who are a notorious dance group from the early 90s, who, quite frankly, if you're not into, if you're not into dance, still look into the KLF. They never put any of their music on streaming for ages, and now it's on Spotify, but just read up on them because... They're, they're as close to um you know a punk band as you can get without being punk they're, they're fascinating um but they teamed up with with the klf on the brit awards live so you've literally got the death metal being played live on primetime weekday t- television <laughs> so you got that i mean a couple of years later cannibal corpse play on ace ventura pet detective yeah yeah so yeah that 92 into 94 period you've got this creative peak of death metal where it's it's significant and think now culturally i think the impact of death metal is significant because people outside of metal when they talk about metal at its most notorious they don't say heavy metal anymore heavy metal is very old school they say death metal death metal you, i get a lot you, of that i get a lot you, of that. yeah you go on dating profiles and you get people oh yeah, no 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 I'm, i'll listen to any music just not death metal lol because yeah. they don't know what death metal is. They probably don't, you know, they probably think Marilyn Manson is death metal, but it's far more embedded in the consciousness of notorious metal scenes. 
because that's probably because it's it's the, the pinnacle of the extreme. I mean, yeah, I suppose Cannibal Corpse are the one band that took it further than anybody else in terms of certainly at, at that level. There's obviously going to be bands further down the, the food chain that probably did take it further. Um, but Butchered at Birth in 91, Tomb of the Mutilated, you know, songs like I Come Blood and fucking Hammer Smash Face. And, you know, they, they, were, they were never um, never kings of subtlety, Cannibal Corpse, whereas the likes of Morbid Angel and that were a bit more thinking man's death metal. But Cannibal Corpse were just a, literally a hammer to the face. And they're still doing it now. So that stands to reason that they, they can still... They could still churn this stuff out thirty odd years down the line, so it's got its place. And then yeah. after death metal, then obviously we'll, we'll go into black metal. I think a little bit on a in the next episode. But the early days of black metal, it, it was starting to it was starting to come to life, probably more domestically. I think in the early nineties. Am I right? It didn't really leave Norway, did it? The you know the early days of Dark Throne. Emperor, Mortal, Burzum, the really early work that was barely listenable. It was very much a Norwegian domestic product. Yeah. It, sorry. Um, it's, like, it's interesting that the, the, the pace of death metal, the slower pace, and then, and then this other scene that springs up that's quite fast, blast beats, but can also, it's weird. I'd like, yeah, I'd like to know why. Why did actually? It's not all fast, is it? Black metal. Some of it's like no. It takes that atmospheric, like that, that, yeah, kind of thing, doesn't it? But then yeah. death metal. A lot of death metal. People go on about um, hardcore bands and and breakdowns and all that kind of stuff. Death metal bands were doing that long before that metallic hardcore stuff came along in the mid nineties. Yeah, but it wasn't all balls out fast. There was a lot of slower bludgeoning sort of sound to death metal as well as pure speed thrash was pure speed death metal was just a it's almost like you couldn't listen to death metal without gurning at the same time <laughs> i don't know I, I i've never really understood death metal apart from death I no no this is where i'm no. i'm like a bit um it's just, it's, yeah it's, well, why it's, well, it's like answer, answered why florida similar i suppose it, it could be similar to to Grunge and Seattle. Maybe it was, like you said, the Sunshine State. Maybe these bands were just reacting to, to what was around them. They didn't want to, you know, it's... It's, it's know. the, you know, it's the retirement state, isn't it? It's basically yeah. full of old people. So young people, you're going to, if you want to rebel and just be boisterous, how better to do it than by playing music that's just, well, gore-drenched and completely so ridiculous. Why, why wasn't there a strong death metal scene in Cornwall? That's what you got to ask yourself. No, no instruments. <laughs> and you've got, you got the folklore history, haven't you, in Cornwall? It's surprising well, that there's never been a, a, a bigger metal scene in Cornwall, I guess, doesn't there? Because it's got all the rest, it's got all the ingredients for a scene. Apart from the infrastructure. I'm sure there is a scene out there. That, but apart from yeah, no. you're right, the, the infrastructure is an issue. There's, there's nowhere yeah. for bands to play in Cornwall. It's but, nothing. But couldn't that? fuel it i mean i can't imagine many bands were playing in part bergen in norway whatever no yeah. that, maybe, maybe maybe that's that's the that's a that's a fair point but again i think going back to some of the things that we've discussed on earlier episodes especially in terms of scandinavia 
I think in Scandinavia you've got with the artistic grants that they can give people and things like that. And do you remember what Lois Creature said to us about the fact that the local council made available or put money into an entire rehearsal space that anyone yeah. could just use? Yeah. And there's just nothing like that in um, uh, in Cornwall. As in, far the UK, as like, in the UK as a whole. And Cornwall's always been a very deprived area anyway. And um, back when you're looking at the emergence of these scenes, this just before there were regular bus routes and stuff like that. So, so um, you needed a Euronymous with someone funding his record shop. I mean, that kid that, that kid was spoiled, wasn't he? Uh, who paid for all that? Daddy. Yeah. Who paid for him to have a record shop? And his all his brother Macaulay. You can Save trace you can trace the money that the Euronymous used to set up his record shop all the way back to the Viking sack of the monastery at Lindisfarne. <laughs> that, that's that's where they got the I money. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so fucking predictable. Um, we'll I think we'll we'll cover um, Black Mal a little bit in the next episode because it, it did kind of come to life certainly outside of Norway more in the mid nineties than it did in the early nineties. Um, none of us can claim to have, have been there back then. So um, uh, we can't talk about the early 90s. Again, like I said, we, we mentioned Rage Against the Machines first album, but <clears throat> we haven't talked about the Black album yet. How, I don't know, we, we can't ignore it, whether you want it or not. But, you know, we weren't, obviously, we would have all been roughly sort of 10, 11 years old around about that time, so wouldn't have been any the wiser. But how do you think you would have felt as a Metallica fan, only having heard the first four albums, and then you hear Enter Sandman or Wherever I May Roam for the first time, how do you think that would have made you feel? Well, production is better for a start. Well, better than Injustice for All, yeah. Yeah. Oh, don't say better. <laughs> oh, no, this is where we get, and oh, we can't talk about Justice for All. It's, it's pre 90, you can't talk about it. That's yeah. too much. Uh, go on, go on. How how well, did how did they go from Justice for All to the Black Album? How did that happen? And did well they regret they regretted Justice, but oh. I think this is all part of the charm of Justice, the bleakness. It's like their morning album for, for Clifton. Yeah. I, 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 I just think it's the high watermark of metal. It's metal as art. Yeah, it's, it's it's a masterpiece. I'm I'm just totally biased. To Justice. It's it's right. just it's that period. It's that period of. I suppose uncertainty and where to go next. It's just, it's so uncommercial and so. I know they made a video, but I, I, I've warmed to the Black Album. I can't, I can't hate them for it anymore. I've, I've been you such can't. a baby. No. I've been a baby about Metallica for too long. But you know that was pretty bold what they did in its in its own way. I don't think it's the sellout. I don't think it's the sellout. No, it's not. It's such an extreme, though, like for, for to go from Master Puppets Justice to the Black Album. It, it's it's go, it, it's you could argue it's almost a pop album. It, it's just yeah. how it, how, it, how did their, their mindset it's, switch? It's it's a hard rock album with metal riffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, that, and, in that in that respect, like what came after isn't such a shock, is it really? No, I guess no, it's not. not it's not and and at the same time it kind of i think not not the style that they went in that's not necessarily shocking i think what was shocking was just how bad some of that material was 
and we can talk about that in the next the next yeah. episode. Yeah, we got yeah, we got to stay, we got to stay about in the mid nineties. But no, I think you know the, the, a lot of people give the Black Album credit, like you know. But for example, people like Chris Jericho, he says he he, he says he loves the Black Album. He's always, and he's always he always refers to those first five albums. I mean, I was reading an article the other day and it was, uh, um, I think it was on, I can't remember which website it was on, but it was about Kerry King and what his opinions of the Black Album <coughs> were. And he actually said that he didn't mind parts of the Black Album. He wasn't as, he said, he's like, I think most people would be surprised to know that I, I didn't hate the Black Album as much as people would think I would have. He had more of a problem with the Load and Reload. Um because he said, you know, there were still some heavy things on there and there were still some fast things. And then I also saw um, a really short interview on a headbangers ball with Dave Mustaine. And he said he felt that the best track on there was Unforgiven. And he, you know, he, 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 he liked it so much that he phoned up Lars to tell him that the arrangement was really great and the chord structure was fantastic. So a lot of the contemporaries, I think, even though they might begrudgingly say it, all felt that that was a very good album. And, and how many bands would have been like, no, we don't want that. We don't want to sell 16 million albums now. We, you know, we'll, we'll just uh, stick to what we're doing. I mean, do you think the there was an element of jealousy? Lombardo. Huh? Sorry? The exception is Dave Lombardo. He threw it downstairs. Did he? Yeah. Dave Lombardo can do whatever he wants. Do you think they were jealous? Because they heard it and knew that they were just going to fucking fly off into the stratosphere beyond and leave everyone else behind. Could anyone have predicted how big that album would have got, though? I don't know. I mean, that's a different though. level of big, isn't it? Who yeah. would have thought Metallica? Lars, Lars would have predicted it. Yeah, Lars would have predicted it. Yeah, yeah, he would. Because, because like, you know, like he said, like he says on the year and a half in the life of the video, this time we really wanted to fuck with the way people like see arena fucking rock. But it's still, it's still heavy isn't it it's not like screaming it's not hysteria is it no you know it's not like it's still quite heavy you wouldn't have thought it would have got as big as it did oh, oh but then there you go that's the way it goes you, know, you never predict these things but i think you've got i think there were there were things that happened around the time that helped push it even further was i think one of them was Metallica being invited to play at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. I mean, the exposure that would have got them was, yeah, let's, yeah, say that, yeah. let's say they've sold six or seven million records at that point. You go on that show, you're going to sell another couple of million based on that performance because they they were one of the bands that stole the show. Secondly, that concert tour they did with Guns N' Roses, the exposure there, I mean, Metallica were big, very big at that point, but Guns N' Roses were bigger. And, and you're going around the country playing, co-headlining 50, 60, 70, 80,000 capacity stadiums on what is probably one of the most anticipated tours in all of music history. Two bands at the absolute top of their game in the early 90s with massive albums to tour on and a really good band in Faith No More as, as, as the support act playing stadiums across Canada and America, I mean, all right, get 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 around production and all the fluff around it. All. Do you think this the Black Album songs are as good as 
song you know the records that preceded it you know everyone's got their favorite some people love ride the most some people puppets like some people justice do you think that song wise it holds up to those albums you've got i suppose it's it's hard to compare them because yeah they're, they're, they're complete they're almost completely different i mean i can listen to the black album it's like you know when when my daughter freya was starting to get into to metal it was the black album that sort of played her first because it is that accessible I can yeah. listen to it and I think that some of the stuff on the album, some of them, they are some of the best songs that Metallica have written, but I would never, I would never put them in the same, I would never put them at the same level as Master of Puppets or Fade to Black or Seek and Destroy or, or whatever, but that's just, I don't know, that's just me personally. I will, I will, I will quite happily listen to the first five songs of that album and tap my foot and nod my head and but yeah, and, you know, Hatfield's voice had changed a lot by then, hadn't it? I mean, you had like the angry singing of Justice, and then it, his voice had dropped quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. quite interesting when you compare that. Uh, he, I mean, was, like, he, started, he was starting to get some um, vocal coaching by that point. One, he yeah. started to look after himself a little bit more, so it's to be expected, I suppose. But it's it's also notable. I think it's the last really good Kurt Hammett um, album in terms of the solos. Yeah, because it was quite yeah. heavily produced by and by Bob Rock. I mean, you've seen you on YouTube. People can go and see the clip of Bob Rock producing the solo of Unforgiven, giving him hell, really. Yeah, but look at the result. One of one of his best solos, I think. One of his best guitar solos. After that, he got a little bit too like just off the cuff. This will, you know, this will do. Kind of. My favorite solo on the album is um, on Struggle Within. Yeah, another great solo. Yeah, great solo. But in need, I think he was being produced by Bob. He was under the gun with Bob. Where I think now he just goes, "I want to, I want to do what I'm feeling on at the time." I really and like my memorable. friend of misery. The, the set that I know this. I mean, I know he gets pillared sometimes for like overuse of the wah wah pedal. But my the solo at the end of my friend of misery is I I, I find it quite interesting. Um, but yeah, it's again. There's hooks in the solos, though. Yeah. That, yeah. Which I think all solos should have a hook. Well, you know, not in all case, but a good, a, most great guitar solos have a hook or hooks. You know, that's what Gilmore's great at. So I, I think it's a shame something changed after that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's reload and load examples that are, that are like that. Can't think of any offhand. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I, to be fair, I just don't revisit those albums a lot. But there you go. Why would why would you? Why would you? I can I can uh, but thinking I can think in my head I can remember the Hero of the Day solo I can remember the Until It Sleeps solo so but I couldn't I couldn't remember a single solo off of Hardwired or Death Magnetic no I cannot remember a single bit of a single solo of those records no I, I can't is that because you've listened to it fewer times no the opposite I've listened to those later albums more than reload and load i listen to death magnetic a lot yeah you know, I they're, they're, they're very listenable at the time but like you say it's it's just nothing sticks no something changed i mean i, I actually like hard boy but i'm going i'm going off something going off track here aren't i'm going forward oh let's um if you decade. i'll put i'll put you all on the spot now because i think you know we've, we've covered most things if we talk in 1990 to 1993 um, we haven't really talked about 1993, so I'll just give you some of the albums that came out in 93. 
um, Bloody Kisses by Typo, Chaos AD by Sepultura, Carcass Heartwork, which is a, a hugely influential album, um, Anthrax, Sound of White Noise, which is, I suppose, a little bit controversial, uh, Life of Agony's River Runs Red, and um, In Tombs, Wolverine Blues, which is a, just a, an absolute... Oh, God, you got the whole... Yeah, you got two things. So you got Sepultura, which is like an episode in itself, and then you've got the whole Swedish death metal scene. Can, can we just very quickly, like, I agree with Rob, but that, you know, Sepultura is that's a potential episode in itself. But like Rob actually mentioned earlier on 91, Arise, that's yeah. an awesome record. 93, KSAD, awesome record. 92, we didn't really mention it, Come Down to Extinction. Yeah. Um, Megadeth's Black Album. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, several Now you're talking about thrash and death metal blending, yeah. surely, aren't you? Are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're talking about that there. Yeah. Which is kind Ar- of Arise is a death metal album. Arise. And the timings, the timings fit for that. Yeah. That yeah. Combination. I mean, I think it's Chaos AD falls into that alternative. I mean, if, if if anyone yeah. if anyone listening to this podcast has never seen. The Sepultura DVD under siege live in Barcelona. Go and watch it because that it's, it's, it's I think it's like an hour and 15 minutes. But if you watch the first couple of tracks on that, I think it's they open with a ride, they've got intro, they got a rise, desperate cry, and then they go into dead <laughs> and, and embryonic cells. Yeah, they were they were unbelievable. Fuck me. Like as a live band, like Max Cavalier cannot do that as a rhythm guitarist now, but at that point they were quite just yeah. unbelievable I mean, chaos like, indeed, people though. it's easy to forget like younger people just how good several tour were in their time yeah um, I agree with that. but yeah but yeah like as as Ant said chaos ad is a different thing isn't it i mean that's that that quite is a different thing yeah i mean we, we can see what it, it could be I don't want to say a precursor to new metal, but I think the way they approach, they approach their riffs and the production. Yeah, yeah things are changing. Yeah. Yeah, changing. pushing. But you've got, you think about that sort of, that two year, that two year period, 92 to 93. So you've got Chaos AD, oh. you've got Sound of White Noise by Anthrax, but you've also got Angel Dust. Angel Dust. By yeah. More, and also, we didn't, didn't mention Meantime by Helmet. Yeah. Odd, yeah. So you've got, you've got these heavy yeah. albums they're metal but they're not metal they're not metal as we when know. did sorry when did um prong release snap your fingers 94 mm. right what are you holding there cock are you holding the mic like some kind of lead singer <laughs> yeah but it's 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 definitely all changing isn't it it's... i want to get one of those chairs where i can put it up there yeah, you're right. You, you get to 93 and, and metal is changing. That more alternative alternative sound is starting to become more prominent in the scene, isn't it? But are they, you know, is there is there a factor here that they've all been inspired by the Black Album? Possibly. Not, not, not to, yeah. yeah, obviously they know they're yeah. not going to be that, but they think, you know, we got to do something that's still us, but we've got to progress. We've got to move Does- forward. Does the influence? Yeah, that's a good point. Also, as well, if you think about it, I think aren't there quite a few grunge tracks, which are, are the heavier tracks, like for example, Jesus Christ Pose, where they use 
they're down tuning. Does that then oh, have the an influence on metal? Soundgarden use bizarre tunings, like really, I nobody's repeated some of those tunings, and and the timings are they use weird time meters. Um, I think the helmet thing's really interesting. Like the I I never thought about the black album in those terms, but yeah, it, things did definitely changed after that. It, it, actually, I will point out uh, something I found out is that actually "Louder Than Love" by Soundgarden was an album that really influenced Kirk for the Black Album. Yeah, apparently, and it's the type of riffs and the type of tempos around those riffs, uh, and then you things kind of flow out of that, don't they? Like, can you imagine? Like, I don't. When did Machine Head's first album come out? Like, nine, you five, can't nine, imagine nine. that without Sepultura's. Without several tours, Chaos AD before it, it's like no, you can't. It's it's. I think you mentioned it right at the top of this episode. It's the the drumming on "Burn My Eyes." You 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 can hark that back to Chaos AD. Yeah, (coughs) you realise how influential these bands are. Like as if we need reminding, but they really are hugely influential. Can can you have one without the other? And you know, and like Pantera also feed into Machine Head. Yeah, I I would imagine. You know. it's interesting that they're called groove metal because you know they're not they're not thrash and they're not really heavy although there's they're a bit closer to heavy but it's this whole groove metal was for me what i what's kind of clicked with me is this feels like a southern band trying to bring blues riffs back into yeah. metal yeah you can take you can you, you can imagine them playing those in on an acoustic or, or non-metal way it's blues that's Dimebag. Yeah. Are we um, massive on that? Do, have we left out corrosion of conformity or are they later? No, I, I was just I was just about to um well what, See, I, what I was gonna say, I was I was gonna um put you all on the spot and look at 1990 to 1993. And because at, at the end of this this magnificent trilogy of episodes that we're putting together, um I want to get to a point where we can look back at the 90s and think what was the what was the standout standout release in the 90s so if you take 1990 to 1993 each of you which which would be your favorite album release from those three four years i actually wrote a list of sort of favorite albums a while back i'd probably say for not any choose one you can choose one album give give me give me two or three you know we'll put together Um, we'll put together a definitive we'll put together a definitive list padre seasons in the abyss definitely Okay, yeah, Arise. I, I really like Arise. Definitely the Black Album. Um, That's all you get. I mean, if I'm allowed we can just separate grunge. Bad Major <laughs> Finger. Bad oh, he's having six, is he? <laughs> well, the two, the two albums from that period in my top 10 90s albums, which I'm still sticking with, is Rust in Peace. And dirt, Mr. Lang. Can I can I just like say I'm not going to choose any metal because this is impossible. Like it's Pearl Jam, Ten, Nirvana, Nevermind, and Bad Motor Finger all in '91 for me. But you know my metal list would be different. I'm sorry. I'm I feel like I'm betraying the the podcast here. You're not. You absolutely. Right. Not. If it was metal, like I got no, I'll do an only metal one. Sorry, I forget what I just said. Um, Pantera, Vulgar Display of Power. Uh. I'm going to choose influential stuff here. I'm going to go for um, Sepultura, KSAD, 
No, it is. Not it is. It Because like a lot. Oh, a black album. All of these albums, no, um, all of these albums mean something to all of us on a much more. Thirty years later, we're we're like, oh, I don't know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, no, nothing. It's embarrassment of riches, isn't it? Whatever you want to call for me, nothing, nothing's ever going to. No, I mean, I mean, like, I, I don't look, look, you know, grunge is part of the wider fraternity, and I'm just like, you know, how many, how, how many, how many people do you know that have like been into metal and learned the guitar and, and not gone away and like learned some of the stuff from like dirt and suit and bad motor finger. I mean, like it's just uh, in spirit. Yeah. It, it's what an amazing three years though. That's insane. When you look at just the, the records listed on here that we've been picking from. Yeah. What an it's mental. Years. It's mad when you think about it. You know, it's yeah. easy. Well, like, can, I, can I just say, can I, can I just say something else as well? Like some of the some of the actual song titles from that period. Like one of my favorite ones is um, a, a, "The Room a Thousand Years Wide." It's it's such a good song title, and then the actual song is good too. Um, "Jesus Christ Pose" is a fantastic name for a song, and it's a fucking good song too. Yeah, you know, Megadeth, "Countdown to Extinction," "Symphony of Destruction," you know, "Tornado of Souls," "Seasons in the Abyss." Great song titles, great album titles, good right. artwork. It is a question then. It's Countdown, Countdown to Extinction versus the Black Album. Black Album. Black Album. But that's that's because oh. I much prefer you were... Euthanasia to Countdown. Oh, that, that, that's interesting. Yeah, you've... see, Anne, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have said that a few years ago. I'm pretty sure you gave me a different answer. No, 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 I've, I've always preferred you. No, no, Padre, sorry. Oh, oh, Padre, yeah. Right. So what, what would I have thought? I'm pretty sure you said Countdown better than the Black Album ones. Yeah. I've got a soft spot for Euthanasia, though. That, that Euthanasia is Euthanasia's a great album. It's, it's yeah. really... So I, full of hooks, great riffs, great... Stain doesn't know about that one. He should. Great songs. I mean, it, Countdown to Extinction is a great album. It's got some really good songs in it. And then it's got Psychotron. <laughs> you just like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why did you write that? Isn't um, it about, is uh, it about a machine that goes yeah, yeah, yeah. self-aware? Yeah, yeah, but I don't like Wolf of Man, you know? I don't, I think, I can yeah, take that's on fair. that one. Fair. I like, but then it hasn't got a like... What's the other, what's the other tree. song? Um, uh, yeah, on, on the Black Album. I Because, I, I, okay, so... Uh, the. When you when you first heard the Black Album and a lot of these other albums, did you hear it on vinyl, CD, or tape? Because if tape. you heard it on tape, right, tape. the Black Album yeah. was basically side A was everything up to Don't Tread on Me, and yeah. then side B was the other side. Now I I never used to get to side B; I just stick on side A. Um, and it's the same with like Calm Down to Extinction because side A would have been Skin of My Teeth, Symphony of Destruction, Foreclosure of a Dream. I can't remember some of the other songs on there. Um, so again, same for like Seasons in the Abyss and. Uh, you mean Boston you couldn't Pink. be bothered to change the tape? Well, no, 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 I couldn't because this is this is before I had one of those fancy Walkmans where you could just flick the switch and it would just also reverse. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, but remember as well, I wasn't. You guys wouldn't let me get 
a CD player for years. You said I had to keep using tapes. It's your fault. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I told you you couldn't buy a CD player. Yeah, this this is the guy with the internet in 1995. Claiming he didn't have access to CDs now. Oh shit, Mister Ham Man. <laughs> All right, things. This is my period. I'm, I'm I'm the same. We never mind though. Incredible side A, but I think that side B is just dull. Yeah. Personally, but in it's utero. Hysteria. I keep mentioning Def Leppard and I will. I know, uh, I'm, I'm, opportunity. <laughs> I've been listening to Pyromania and um uh high and dry a lot lately. So. Right, stop stop with stop with your 80s nonsense. Uh, the uh, the the head the headline act then let's let's round this this episode off with um you know, the, uh, the the questionable elephant in the room, Fear of the Dark. Rubbish. So, <laughs> so Maiden have gone from seventh son of a seventh son. Adrian Smith fucked off. Everything's starting to go downhill a little bit. What did we all think of Fear of the Dark? Honest, honest opinions. Got a song, Weekend Warrior on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's over long. It needs editing. It, it's. Um... I mean, it's it's better than no prayer for the dark. No prayer for the dark. Not by much. Not by much. Um, is it? Is it like their load then? If we look at the albums before, they did everything right. I suppose not, if you put it's not it, as interesting as load. If you put it in that sense, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. Yeah. Just, oh my god! It all went so wrong, didn't it? There are the there are a few great. Like no one hates the title track, do they? No, I mean, no, no. Oh, it's got one of the best, the best openers. What else? I don't um, even know what else is on the record. I can't remember. Judas be my guide or whatever. The, um, you, know, I, you know what? I like that. I don't know well, why. I love that chorus. The thing with the thing with the title track though is it only came to life live. Live, yeah. Didn't I it? can't you acknowledge know. them without Adrian Smith, and I won't. I won't. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm just going to sit this one out. I'm going to um, I'm going to throw, spa- think... throw a spanner in the works though, and one of my unsung, one of my maiden unsung heroes in terms of one up there with some of my favourite songs, is Chains of Misery. I, I I I do I do have a real soft spot for that. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> yeah. Who wrote Who wrote that one? It's got to be a Yannick Gers one. Isn't it? Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> I just can you. Can you trust anyone with a surname like Gers? You can't trust someone who puts their hind leg up on the monitor for no real reason during gigs. It's like he's, why are you cocking your leg? It's, he's hardly playing. I don't think he's plugged in. I mean, there's, there's, there's an entire thread on Reddit about, I think it's titled like, what the hell does Yannick Gers actually add to Maiden? And it's like, people are basically saying he should be like, I cast you out, demon. It's like yeah, it's just get, get rid of them. Just have Adrian Smith and Dave Murray. Credit that they they didn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. Out, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Do you reckon Maiden are going to be like Maiden live? You know what is he doing? He's dancing. He dances. It's like what what is he doing? He's like <laughs> the opposite of Adrian Smith, who's like. What, what would you? You know, Maiden have got. You know, Maiden have got three guitar players. What did you do if they actually went hold the whole hog and they brought Blaze Bailey and and Phil Paulianio back and had all three singers on stage at Stratton. the same time? Oh, Dennis Stratton, yeah. Thank you, Bring back Stratton. <laughs> so four guitar players and three vocalists. 
Yeah. All all singing and playing at once. Yeah. It'd be I like a more I think it'd be brilliant. I think it would be a fucking mess. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> can yeah. It's mad, isn't it? To think they, they have had three singers. But like, you know, when they get to the stuff that Diania wasn't involved in, he just like stands at the side of the stage pounting. They're like pounting. Oh, it's not my stuff. I'm not singing it. Pound, it's pound, <laughs> pounting. pounting. <laughs> That's a new word. Pounting. That's I want pounting as a new word that you can only use on your podcast. Yeah. Okay. How dare you? King of English and King of pronunciations come up with you've got one. him at the end of the week here he's 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 oh, i've been i've been grading essays all day he's taken out <laughs> no no seriously do you want to like one of one of the, the cl- classic lines uh, um from one of my uh chinese students today who's doing like you know international commerce and stuff wrote an essay and one of the lines was in china a woman's worth flows from a man's strength and i'm just like you can't oh say god. stuff like that like for god's sake well oh, by right. the way um just 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 very quickly oh it's um, never just very quickly no though, no, no did you see um so I, I put a post on facebook today about you know the queen passing away someone i know from the u.s shared it and apparently and i've checked this out it's gone it got picked up by a history professor at some college in new jersey and i've now been hashtagged with the with the hashtag white man's burdens <laughs> <laughs> what what oh i need to reread what uh, you said i didn't like look, look, i didn't say anything that um controversial all right i basically said uh, the, the 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 thesis of my post was and it was only a couple of you know, it was, it was a paragraph. I was like basically saying, look, she's dead. You know, can we have a conversation about like um, she's gone from the post-war period, post-war reconstruction to the modern era. Uh, we need to reflect on what what her role meant to us and, you know, at the problems we're now facing. And can we do it within the context of her death is marking a point where we can just start putting some of this stuff back in the past and leaving it there, like the post-colonial period and dealing with the fact that we're no longer an empire and stuff. And like, you know, can we have a conversation and reflect on this and actually, so we can avoid things like voting for things like Brexit on false premises or, or, or kind of inflated opinions of what we used to be. And that somehow got translated into me being an apologist for colonialism which is now me getting my name is being hashtagged with white man's burdens and white fragility. I assume you're going to edit all this bit out. Fuck you now. No, no, I don't take anything out. Uh, so no yeah, um, I, I'm just like for fuck's sake. I mean, like, I mean, when have I ever been a pro-colonialist monarchist? You're, cer- you're certainly never going to be an apologist. That's for sure. <laughs> No, I'm just like, oh, whatever. So, yeah, it's, I mean... Anyway, anyway. It's, here's a question, just oh. to try and put things into perspective for what we talked about and, the, you know, the, the late 80s. <clears throat> the first Grammy for a metal stroke hard rock performance was in 1989, so Feb 1989 for 1988. Who do you think won that? Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull. Oh, OK. Right. Aqualab. <laughs> oh, man. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so so there you go. That's that that, that explains it all about that period, doesn't it? On um on that note, um next week we'll we'll tackle 94, 95, and 96. So we'll look at um the alternative British rock scene. So your therapy, terrorism, skunk and anti, the birth of that kind of era. Um we will tackle the um the I don't even know how to describe it really. We will tackle load and reload. Um and you know the 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 grand decline of Metallica. Um we'll talk about Korn's debut and the first wave of new metal, the end of Sepultura in 96, and the uh, and the the sort of emergence of black metal outside of Norway and and what that meant to to extreme metal in the 90s and whatever um, else comes up. I will be back in uh, Italy next Friday. Thank fuck for that. See, I told you, though, do you remember what I said when I first got back? That I bring you hope. And now as I'm leaving, the Queen dies. So if I had stayed, she wouldn't have died. No, I think I think she didn't realise you were going. She's just had enough. No, I, th- I think she just she she met Liz Truss and then Liz Truss was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this every week. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck's sake. Um, Rob, thank you for your uh, contributions this evening. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope we have you back again at some point because you're more than welcome anytime. Whether you want to come back or not is a different question. See <laughs> <laughs> what we put up with. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks everyone for listening and uh, I, hope it's, I hope you uh, enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy recording it. And uh, see you next week. Cheers. Bye.